Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Bernard Buddha. Today, we are beginning our coverage of the novella The Eye Flash Miracles. Uh, this story, novella really, was originally published in 1976 in Future Power, edited by Jack Dan and Gardner Dozois. Yeah, that's a really fantastic anthology. I actually own that from way back. It's something that uh, I purchased when I was a teenager with Brent when we were prowling around our local underground used bookstore. Uh, so that's something we'll take up in the discussion, you know, in many episodes hence. But of course, we actually read this together here out of The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And because this is a novella, we are going to take several episodes to cover it. We're going to do five recap episodes, followed by what will probably be a pretty big discussion episode. We're going to take our time airing these as well. We're going to air them monthly. And this is also going to be all that we do here on the show in 2024, because Brandon needs to have some time off. We've talked about that elsewhere. And then we will continue onward with The Devil in a Forest at some point next year. So this episode is our first recap episode. We're going to cover up to page 288. If you haven't already joined us on Patreon, now's a great time to check us out over there as well, because we are starting a series on Chicago in speculative fiction. That starts this month on Patreon. So uh, if you haven't checked out our, our other shows, do that. Also, check us out on Patreon uh, if you feel like you're not going to get enough uh, Gene Wolf content this year from us. There's a lot of other uh, episodes that we've produced that are Gene Wolf adjacent or Gene Wolf directly related. And some of these episodes are going to show up in this series in Chicago, a place that's near where I live now and a place near where uh, you grew up, Glenn. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is kind of the geographic glue of everyone who is a host currently on the <laughs> network. And uh, that shows up here on this series, which we've entirely recorded and, and produced at this point. But it's a series really that begins with A Walking Tour of the Shambles by Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman, this really fun you know, pamphlet, really, that they wrote for a con. We did a team-up episode to cover that. It's you and me and Brent all together. And then from there, we spun off and did uh, you know, different host combinations to cover a variety of speculative fiction set in Chicago, including the Dresden Files, some uh, World of Darkness material. In fact, specifically, it's uh, the Vampire, the Masquerade book, Chicago by Night. And Brent and I did a little bit of uh, DC Comics as well. So it's a pretty fun series. We hope you'll uh, check that out if you're not already with us on Patreon. But let's turn our attention here to what is also a pretty good story. This is an incredible story. Uh, you know, the big overview is, I guess, or the big pitch to Wolf fans is to say, this is the first story uh, that Gene Wolf writes where you can see a lot of the er like earlier ideas kind of come into fruition a little bit, um, but then that that fruit really flowers, so to speak, in Book of the New Sun. This is like kind of a, a missing link sort of story, I think. That's for Gene Wolf fans. For non-Gene Wolf fans. This is a great kind of pastiche of different time periods and literary genres. It is a really good science fiction story. It's a fascinating messianic story, and we have a lot to cover, not just today, but in the weeks to come. So why don't we jump right into it, Glenn? Right. The first thing that we should say about the story is that Wolf tells it in the third-person voice, but from a limited perspective. 
And the perspective is that of a boy, he's probably around 10 years old. His name is George Tibbs, but he goes by Little Tib. And Little Tib is on his own in the American countryside somewhere, and he is walking along some train tracks. Specifically, he is walking on the rail so that he can feel if a train is coming. And the reason he's doing that is that he is blind and won't be able to see it coming. And his blindness is something that Wolf reveals explicitly on the second page, though Wolf writes even the very first sentence without reference to a sense of sight. Everything is either sound or, or touch. It's extraordinarily well-crafted. It's also, I think, just a really great opening if you uh, enjoy or, or have, I guess, the romance of trains in your blood. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we will have time to talk about trains and the way... Wolf uses them to give us a sense of when for the story. Like, when does this story take place? But before getting into that business, uh, which may really only be fully explored in a world-building uh, section in our discussion, let's observe tradition and talk about the epigraph of the story. Uh, this epigraph comes from a story by Anatoly France called The Procurator of Judea. And the line reads like this. This is the line we get to open the story. Quote, I cannot call him to mind. Now, France, I'll talk a little bit about this line now. Um, France was a French literary figure, poet, author, memoirist, critic, and so on, who was active from about 1870 until his death in uh, 1924. Over the course of his life, he managed to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1921. So he's a big deal. I've not really read him. Um, perhaps he was an influence on Marcel Proust as well, who we know Wolf admired. Now, The Procurator of Judea is a short story wherein two Romans, alias Lamia and Pontius Pilate, meet again after passing one another on the road, and they have a brief conversation about the time they spent in Judea. A pilot is full of virile hatred for the Jewish people, while Lamia tries to maybe smooth out some of Pilate's vitriol as they interact and, and chat about Judea. Uh, Lamia, for instance, is really big into Epicurus, which, if I were analyzing the procurator of Judea, would mean I'd have something to say about how that might be a philosopher whose thoughts give aid to Lamia's project of cooling down Pilate's anti-Semitism. Uh, but that's, we're going to save that conversation actually, Glenn, for our Anatoly France podcast uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that we'll, I guess we'll be doing in 2042. But in any event, <laughs> after uh, Lamia listens to Pilate's recollections of his past, he asks Pilate about Jesus of Nazareth. And it's here at the very end of the story that we get this line that provides the epigraph for the eye flash miracles. Pilate tells Lamia that he, quote, cannot call him to mind. And let me just say one thing regarding this, uh, maybe the touchy subject of the story, which is to say that it seems to be the case uh, that France kept the Dreyfus affair in his mind uh, for a long time in it, throughout his writing career. And even he wrote in support of Dreyfus after uh, he was unjustly accused of treason in 1894. So it's fair to say that France was writing to point out the absurdity of anti-Semitism and how it is incongruent with the more holistic philosophical vantage point, which, you know, at this point in history, 
um, in the 1920s, intellectual culture was still heavily influenced by the way the Enlightenment thinkers categorized, you know, reason and rationality, very roughly speaking. So to point out absurdity um, would have been a kind of blow to a rationalized system of anti-Semitism, really. But I, I think that what Wolf is doing here is just blankly telling us that we are going to read a story where failing to call t- Jesus to mind is important to the background or the world uh, that the Eye Flash Miracles is taking place in. And um, that has nothing to do with trains, but uh, I guess we covered the epigraph here. <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll get back to trains in just a second, but this is fantastic because I mean, look, the title of the story contains the word miracles in it. Jesus is a miracle worker, right? So there's a parallel there or some kind of connection there. Right. And yeah, I mean, the idea here of, of, of Pontius Pilate who oversees the execution of Christ, not actually remembering that person, right? Because it was just another day on the job for him. He oversaw the execution of loads of people, right? And I don't remember that one specifically is more or less what he saying here, even though from our perspective, right, Jesus goes on to become one of the most important figures who's, you know, ever, ever lived, right? Founding a major world religion that survived for thousands of years and so on. But the person who was there at the most important event of that religion doesn't even remember that person. And so the idea, I guess, being that great things coming from humble beginnings or important things coming without you know, out very much fanfare, right? And so that's a cue for us to pay attention to, I don't know, the meek might actually be a good word to use here, right? The meek who are going to inherit the earth uh, might also be something else that we want to keep in mind. But all right, let's, uh, but, but all right, let's get back to the train business here. So a train does come, little Tib gets off the track and heads down an embankment to a stream, And we learn now that he is going to Sugarland, Texas, which is part of the Houston metropolitan area. We also get some new characters. There are two of them. These are two men traveling together. And the first is Mr. Parker, who is the superintendent of Grovehurst School in Martinsburg, which is some two or three hundred kilometers away. Um, it may be important that we're using the metric system in this story. We'll take that up, you know, at some point, probably the discussion episode. At any rate, Mr. Parker is concerned that Little Tib is not in school. Little Tib is an absentee. And so Mr. Parker is ready to enroll the boy in Grovehurst and wants to make sure that his papers are in order. And it's clear the way that Wolf writes this. It's clear that Mr. Parker maybe doesn't quite know where he is or, you know, what is what is going on around him. Fortunately, though, Mr. Parker is not alone. He's got Nitty with him. We'll learn a lot more about Nitty in a few episodes, but for now... We can see, we can tell that he feels subservient to Mr. Parker, but at the same time is Mr. Parker's protector, perhaps even just his general guardian, given that Mr. Parker's grip on reality is a little loose. And we learn in a few pages that Nitty was the maintenance man at Grovehurst. And where Mr. Parker begins their encounter with Little Tib by scolding him for being an absentee, Nitty's instinct is to get the boy some food and make the boy feel safe and secure with them. And these are going to be our main characters in the story, this trio here. But we do also get some world building in this section that I want to bring our attention to. Now, when Mr. Parker is asking about Little Tib's papers, he includes in his list Tib's retinal pattern card from the Federal Reserve. 
And Nitty now recognizes that the boy is blind, and he says that his retinas have been destroyed, and that makes him unreal in a sociological sense. He's been deprived of existence because he does not have his retinas any longer. So even though this business with people wandering around train tracks and walking for hundreds of kilometers makes the story feel like this is the first half of the 20th century, that is not when we are. Or at least if it is, Wolf is envisioning a different version of it. He's envisioning a version of, say, the 1930s that has some technology that it did not have in our real world. Yeah, there's just so much going on here, uh, so much to consider. And uh, I do want to give some context, I think, for the types of, I don't know, time frame pastiches that, that Wolf is dealing with. So let's consider the Great Depression era backdrop here for context, and then we can consider the role uh, of the Federal Reserve in this story as well. Um, maybe the first thing we really ought to do, Glenn, is just acknowledge that there's some real Steinbeckiness, I think, in this story. I'll offer what little proof I have of that uh, from what little I've read of Steinbeck later on. Uh, you know, I've read like The Pearl in eighth grade and then East of Eden maybe within the past decade or so. Uh, but Steinbeck dealt with the injustice surrounding the period of the Great Depression and, you know, the Dust Bowl and so on in The Grapes of Wrath, at least from what I understand. And also maybe more pertinently to the Eye Flash Miracles in Of Mice and Men as well. That story has characters whose name refers to their size and also crucially deals with uh, mental disability and caregivers and so on, um, which, you know, Mr. Parker certainly has some kind of disability, even though that disability is, as we'll see in later episodes, technologically induced. So, you know, I think that Steinbeck's America during the Great Depression is one potential literary source we can consider for having influenced Wolf's world building here. We'll bring up other important sources for some background context of this story as they come up. Um, you know, there are many, and I'll try to catch them all in order to provide necessary context. But let's move that to the back burner here and, and now think about this uh, Federal Reserve stuff. That ties also into the Great Depression a little bit. Now, being roughly 50 years removed from the writing and the publication of this story, um, it's really difficult to sift through all of the contemporary concerns or even conspiracy theories that swirl around today related to the Federal Reserve and then separate those attitudes out, uh, some of which are probably legitimate critiques, I suppose, from people who have a greater grasp of the Federal Reserve than I do, um, to try to separate those out to get you know the world that Wolf was living in and to think about what his critiques or contemporary critiques of the Federal Reserve might be. So setting aside that I know next to nothing about the Federal Reserve, save what I've learned from conspiracy theorists, we can also maybe set aside pointing to the real-world analog of the reserve's function in our economy, which is setting interest rates, controlling the printing uh, uh, of money and managing inflation, deflation, and so on, basically being in charge of monetary policy. And we can consider how they're used in this story, or at least how we encounter the Federal Reserve early on. So there are two important bits of context that might be relevant to the way the Federal Reserve is used in this story. 
The first is that in 1971, President Nixon uh, chose to take the U.S. off of what's called the gold standard. Uh, now, the gold standard tied the value of U.S. currency to actual gold. And so it was difficult to manipulate currency when the value of the currency was tied to something tangible and real. Now, in terms of domestic policy, the U.S. had been off the gold standard. Uh, that is the requirement for banks to have a certain percentage of gold in their vaults based on the amount of currency they issued um, since 1933 due to the negative effects that domestic gold policies had on U.S. banks and global gold supply during the Great Depression. So Nixon's move, which I think was fairly unilaterally supported by both parties, it was popular with both Republicans and Democrats, was to take the U.S. dollar off the gold standard for international transactions as well. So the U.S. dollar could not be converted to gold outside of the U.S. either anymore by 1971. One effect of these policies was that the perception that the Federal Reserve was really in the driver's seat in terms of U.S. monetary policies, uh, or maybe just policies brought more broadly speaking, especially if you get into critiques of capitalism as it applies to the way democracies can slip in, in, into becoming oligarchies. But in any event, this notion that the Federal Reserve, which is run by a non-democratically elected board and is privately held as a privately held organization and which controls our monetary policy uh, in the U.S., whose economic system has been, you know, slowly subsumed our democratic uh, system. The idea that the Federal Reserve is too powerful has been around for some time. The Reserve and its interference, uh, furthermore, in the U.S. economy has been blamed for the severity of the Great Depression as well. So we're talking 40 years after the Great Depression, 30 years after the end of the Great Depression, um, the Federal Reserve may have manipulated the monetary policy very poorly to make the Depression worse than it needed to be. And now we're giving them all this power, you know, in the early 70s in this different way by becoming a totally fiat currency. Um, so there will be plenty of time in this, as the story continues to consider how Wolf is thinking maybe about capital and capitalism in the story, democracy versus, uh, or, you know, socialism or collectivism versus individualism. All of these ideologies, I think, come into play in one way or another. But for now, we can just say that Wolf has imagined a world where the Great Depression served as an opportunity to turn the U.S. from a democratic republic, where the common good is served, into an economy where capital is service first. And who is in charge of capital, roughly speaking? Well, it's it's the Federal Reserve. And I'll, you know, I'll say in terms of skepticism and conspiracy theories surrounding islands in the U.S. Uh, you know, to close to close this little pressy here. I'm more of a Plum Island man uh, than a Jekyll Island man. But um, I don't know. We haven't even gotten to, to, to what the plot of this thing is yet, man. And we're, we're I don't know, 25 minutes into this. Uh, it's going to be a while, I think, still before we get to the, the the plot here. But yeah, no, this is this is great. I mean, this business with the Federal Reserve really jumps out here because even if, you know, what we can infer from this is that there's some kind of, you know, card that you get from the Federal Reserve for some 
reason that you know allows you as a citizen to access something, that's a little strange, right? When we have something like that, uh, in, in our world, it comes from the Treasury Department rather than the actual Federal Reserve Bank. So something something is unusual there to begin with. And yeah, this, uh, this moment in 1971 that is often called the Nixon shock, this re- removing entirely, right, of the United States from the gold standard is often regarded to be a pretty big deal when I, you know, I did one year of college before joining the army and I was an international relations major when I, uh, when I did that, I had dreams of being the secretary of state. Uh, now I'm in my basement in my pajamas talking about 50 year old science fiction novellas with my friend. That's, uh, that's <laughs> what happens to dreams, I guess. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the course that I took, the kind of foundational course of international relations where I was going to college, you know, you know, the professor of that class, you know, referred to this moment as the Nixon shock. And he thought this was the most important thing that had happened uh, since World War II. I should say, you know, this was you know, only 25 years later. This was the the 1990s, right? Uh, but he thought this was the most important thing that had happened after the Second World War, and that was really shaping and defining international relations. And so you can see where at the time in the 70s, people perhaps would have felt that way, would have seen this as a big moment that could have all sorts of stakes and consequences and so on, and that that might be something that Wolf is thinking about here. Uh, we can put that in terms of, of thinking about the anthology that it's in as well when we get to the discussion. But of course, the Federal Reserve Bank has been a contentious issue since even before the United States existed. It was part of the debates of the framers of our Constitution. I have never seen the musical Hamilton, but if this is not like central to the plot of the musical Hamilton, then you have been ripped off uh, by going to see the musical Hamilton. It's a big part of, of Hamilton's deal is the idea of having a Federal Reserve Bank. It becomes a big deal again in the 1820s. It's actually even there in the backdrop leading up to the Civil War as well. And then, yeah, of course, rears its head again during the Depression and so on. It's uh, it's frequently something that's contentious in our politics. So we will uh, we'll definitely have to keep that in mind. But I, I'm so glad, Brandon, that you pointed out here, though, that just this little bit of world building lets us know that this story that begins with an epigraph recalling to mind the life of Christ, that this story is going to be an entry into Wolf's catalog of political science fiction as well. Absolutely. This 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 story, I mean, later on, I'll probably refer to it as in some ways is like Wolf's examination of, of ideology, even. This is a this is a very rich and dense story. So I think we just gotta keep uh, you know, this podcast train on on track here. Yeah, but still, before we get to the plot of this novella, we have a flashback that we have to deal with. And this flashback may be a dream that little Tib is having while he and Mr. Parker and and Nitty are camping for the night, though that is not clear. And this flashback is really just two paragraphs. And so I'm just going to read this wholesale into the microphone. And you know, if you're following along at, at home, this is the bottom of page 285. His father had him by the hand. They had left the hanging-down train and were walking along one of the big streets. He could see. He knew he should not have been noticing that particularly, but he did, and far behind it somewhere was knowing that if he woke up, he would not see. He looked into store windows, and he could see big dolls like girls' dolls wearing fur coats. Every hair on every coat stood out, drenched with light. He looked at the street and could see all the cars like big, bright-colored bugs. Here, Big Tib said. They went into a glass thing that spun them around and dumped them out inside a building. 
then into an elevator all made of glass that climbed the inside wall almost like an ant, starting and stopping like an ant did. We should buy one of these, little Tib said. Then we wouldn't have to climb the steps. He looked up and saw that his father was crying. He took out his, little Tib's, own card and put it in the machine, then made little Tib sit down in the seat and look at the bright light. The machine was a man in a white coat who took off his glasses and said, We don't know who this child is, but he certainly isn't anyone. Look at the bright light again, little Tib, his father said. And something in the way he said it told little Tib that the man in the white coat was much stronger than he was. He looked at the bright light and tried to catch himself from falling. Well, one of the early motifs of the story, maybe just this page of the story, is is crying and weeping. A little Tib cries earlier when Nitty tells Mr. Parker to ease off about trying to get little Tib's identification papers. Um, one supposes that little Tib is always on guard about people trying to peer too closely into his identity, and you know he's afraid. So maybe he's crying out of out of a sense of fear or, or, or worry. Then we see Mr. Parker crying in that same scene, weeping, I think is the word the text uses. And Mr. Parker is weeping, one supposes, because he's overwhelmed by the fact that he feels he's surrounded by idiots. Um, but I think it's all really because he kind of knows how out of touch with reality he is. And so he confabulates these reasons for his frustration. And then finally, we have this this weeping again of Big Tib during this dream of the past. Uh, Maybe there's nothing to make of it uh, in the story so far, but I think maybe the drying of eyes, the wiping away of every tear, uh, the end of a need to cry is something that we can we can track as those are images of the the promise of the 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 the, the new heavens and the new earth in, in uh, Judaism, but also more broadly Christian um, eschatology. Uh, another thing this dream does is introduce us, I think, a little more clearly to the advanced technological state of the world. We've got hanging or suspension trains, revolving doors, great glass elevators, you know, the mention of which causes big tip to to cry due to maybe feelings of shame associated with poverty. And most importantly, a machine that is also a man that gives little Tib's eyes a nice big flash. You know, I wonder if that's going to be relevant at some point, but maybe the most important thing we see here is context for little Tib being a quote, sociological ghost. Um, We see his father tried to get little Tib into the system, but then something went wrong. And and something else that we'll want to take up in our discussion is the degree to which Wolf is commenting on bureaucratic social governance, bureaucratization of of our uh, governance in general, or the creation of organizing systems that exclude undesirables first off, but then also really create classes of undesirables as well. You know, does Wolf think that this is a problem? Uh, This is just some more food for thought. I'm glad you emphasized here the the imagery as well of the the revolving door and the elevator, because it reminds me of another place where we have seen that kind of imagery. And in fact, it's in this same short story 
collection, another story from the 1970s. It's the hero as werewolf, where um, yeah, Wolf is actually dealing, I think, with some of the same issues, some of the same themes, and using some of the same images to do that in a story that's actually you know a very different kind of story than this one. But that also might be something we want to keep in mind when we get to the discussion as well. And yeah, just in general, I think this story has the highest ratio of uh, tears per page than any wolf story that we have covered so far. Well, look, all of this so far has been giving us the setup. It's been introducing us to these characters and, and also introducing us at least a little bit to the world. But we do now, as, as we said, I think 15 minutes ago, need to get a little bit of plot injected into this story. Uh, also a little more world building here before we wrap up for the day. As you will have figured out, Mr. Parker is not actually currently employed as the superintendent of Grovehurst School, but he would like to be, which is to say that he wants his job back. And he and Nitty seem to have some kind of plan for that. And this plan involves breaking into a building and using a computer to program something. But they've already tried this, and they they just couldn't get in. They had found a a possible entrance, a window that was open, but the problem is that the window was barred. It had bars in front of it, and neither of them could fit through these bars. But Little Tibbs seems like he's the right size to be able to do that. And so they pitched the idea to Little Tib, and he's in. He's in for, I don't know, some kind of heist movie here now. So at this point then, they have to catch a train, which of course means stowing away on the next freight train that passes by, and then also avoiding the railway police. And we're going to get the next part of the adventure here in the next episode. But before we close out this one, let's get a little more world building, a little more backstory. The trains are not crude. They have been replaced by some kind of technology. A mechanism is actually the word that Mr. Parker uses. And he uses that same term to describe what replaced him as the superintendent of Grovehurst. But we should add that the railway police do seem to be people. But at any rate, Mr. Parker describes all of this as a wider transformation. And here's what he says. It was the wholesale displacement of labor and the consequent nomadism that resulted in the present reliance on retinal patterns as means of identification. And he goes on to say that the retinal scans provide access to what he calls social relief accounts so that you can pay for things with your eyes, basically. And in fact, this is really the only way to do it because money as a material object no longer exists. And so really, it feels like what Wolf is envisioning here is a Great Depression as if it had been designed by Philip K. Dick. I mean, I'm not as well read in Philip K. Dick as you are, so I'm going to have to agree with you based on Spielberg's film Minority Report, right? Which is, uh, you know, the eyeballs are a pretty big deal in that and and what they uh, represent in society. I'm sure we can add Dick to the list of literary reference points for the eye flash miracles. And before this episode is through, I think we'll add two more to the list and we're at the end of the episode. So that's going to come quickly. But uh, before we do that, I have to say that I love the way that Mr. Parker, when he's explaining the way that society has become reliant upon mechanisms, you know, I love the way he says that quote, who could have believed that running a train was as routine and mechanical a business as teaching a class yet it proved to be so. I think there's just so much to chew on with a statement like this about what it means for the society that these hobos live in. 
There's a warning here about education becoming too rote uh, so that it can be mechanized in the first place, I think. You know, teaching a class should not be a repetitive motion. Um, but again, we're dealing with a critique of social planning that seems to expect that that people with different learning styles, capabilities, even disabilities uh, can just be excluded from uh, certain realms of social life, including education. You know, only those who excel at taking standardized tests should succeed. None of this is explicit here, but I can't help but think that Wolf has in mind the Scantron when he is uh, when he's writing about the the routinization of education. Yeah, gosh, one of the most vile inventions of all time, the the, the Scantron. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bad one. But, but before diving into the big thing to point out here at the end of this first section of iFlash Miracles, I also want to point out how much I like Nitty as a character. He's protective and caring, and, and Wolf is able to give us a full picture of the dynamic between Nitty and Mr. Parker by giving us a brief description of how they interact from Little Tib's point of view. Here's what Wolf writes, quote, most of the time, Mr. Parker sounded like he was important and Nitty was not. But when he said, are we going to eat this morning, Nitty? It was the other way around. Again, I, you know, there's just so much to chew on with a statement like this, considering who society rewards and why and how people who have been rewarded by society carry that sort of uh, privileged stance, even when they are in the same dire straits as others who they had previously considered less than based on their status uh, in a previous time. But, but the main thing we need to bring up here is the moment in the story here when we learn that little Tib can see. George Tib can see when he's dreaming. And what he dreams of in this section of the story is this. First, he sees a field of sunflowers that, quote, whirl around and around when little Tib is not looking at them. These flowers, though, turn their face toward little Tib as he passes through them. And let me just say that uh, messianic figures being associated with the sun, that can't be something on Wolf's mind here. You know, he's not hes not ever going to turn this into a whole uh, important motif in his career. So we can ignore <laughs> that maybe. But, um, you know, you know, little Tib walks through this field and then, quote, the city came down like a cloud and settled on a hill in front of him. Now the city is green and it looks like glass and little Tib wants to get into the city to see the king who it turns out is a woman. Uh, furthermore, little Tib has to wear glasses, which turn out to be a bit of a, a farcical item. They don't really reveal anything at all, which maybe is a little bit of imagery playing with the idea that the uh, federal reserves identification system, um, is, uh, is, is is also maybe a farcical system as well. And also it brings into sharp relief this idea that little Tib has about going to Sugarland because there they, quote, know who you are. Uh, you know, as, a, as an aside here, I think I'll, I'll save a deep dive into Sugarland until our last episode or maybe our discussion episode because I think it plays into certain themes 
and reveals what Wolf has in mind. And um, it just won't do to go too deep into all of that up front here. But let's dig into this imagery that we do have here about the city on a hill coming down. We've talked about this rhetoric before on the network, you know, the shining city on a hill. Uh, but it's first and foremost a reference to one of Jesus's sermons about how his followers will be regarded which is as a city upon a hill that cannot be hid or ignored. That Jesus' disciples would be a light before men, leading them to the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem, which is another city that will come down from the heavens. So there's more Jesus imagery here. Um, you know, there's also a degree to which this phrase is part of American political rhetoric, really starting with John F. Kennedy. That points towards American exceptionalism as well. So you can see maybe an element of parody in, in the use of this. You know, the, the, this imagery that Kennedy used and also Reagan uh, – to point towards American exceptionalism shows us that we are akin to a sacred people. We can face any hardship because we've got God on our side and he's been on our side from the start, you know, as Americans. But maybe just as important as all of that to this story is the Wizard of Oz. And I, I want to read a brief passage from the second Oz book by L. Frank Baum, which is called The Marvelous Land of Oz. That novel features a character called Tip. Again, you know, don't 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 worry about it. Uh, we'll get to all of this stuff later. And Tip is a boy. He ends up in a field of sunflowers. Uh, so this is what I'll read from the marvelous land of Oz. And here I'm quoting. At these words, they all looked around, only to find that they were indeed surrounded by a field of tall stalks. Every stalk bearing at its top a gigantic sunflower. And not only were these flowers almost blinding in their vivid hues of red and gold, but each one whirled around upon its stalk like a miniature windmill, completely dazzling the vision of the beholders and so mystifying them that they knew not which way to turn. So I think it's very clear here, uh, you know, that Wolf is either quoting or pulling heavily from Baum's world. And it may be the case that this book, this, this these Oz books, can also explain why the king is a woman. Uh, this is something, again, we will return to in our later episodes and really in our discussion episode. But uh, as Forrest Gump once remarked, that's all I have to say about that. But Glenn, I wonder what your thoughts are on all of this. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. We're not going to do all of that here in our first recap episode. But yeah, The the Wizard of Oz is this sh strange book. I mean, it's known for this, right? It's this strange book that is really an allegory all about uh, American business policy or fiscal policy, I guess, really, right? And that this whole business with the yellow brick road is about this question of uh, you know, being on the gold standard or not and so on. And so, yeah, it seems like obviously that's a big part of what, what is going on here with Wolf, you know, bringing this back to this Nixon shock moment, thinking about that then through the lens of the Wizard of Oz, um, you know, behind the scenes, I don't want to speak for you, Brandon, but behind the scenes, I went and read all of the Wizard of Oz books after reading this story because I had never read 
read a single one of them. Uh, I don't know how how helpful that's actually going to end up being, but we'll uh, we'll find out uh, all together, I guess, as we as we continue on. And then, yes, of course, all of this this imagery of uh, America as a you know a city, you know, shining city on a hill, right? That this comes from this uh, uh, famous sermon, well, now famous sermon anyway, from John Winthrop in the 17th century. This uh, you know Puritan uh, sermon that uses this imagery for the first time that then, yes, very much gets picked up in the American conservative movement that's contemporary to the writing of this story. So this is a really cool melange, really cool mix of ideas that are swirling around the political discourse here in the 1970s that Wolf is picking up on. And we just haven't covered a story like this in a long time. I guess we haven't really covered a wolf story in a long time because we spent like 10 years working on peace, I guess, right? So yeah. uh, anyway, I guess what I'm trying to close out here with, right, is simply that it's fun to be back here. It feels good to be back in this uh, this place in Wolf's career. It's a strange feeling to stare down, you know, 10 pages of a wolf text to know that's going to take 10 hours or 12 hours of your life, you know, researching the references, <laughs> trying to make sense of it, doing analysis, coming up with a thesis, you know, and we, I think we made the right move of saving our major theses till the discussion episode. But my God, this is uh this is a dense and heavily elusive story. I only skimmed the first three, uh, Oz books in, in after reading this and and relied heavily on the control F function and the Gutenberg project where I was reading them um, to find a, a lot of my um, to do a lot of my research. But yeah, Wolf is I think relying a lot on memory um, in 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 his reading of the Oz stories here, but. I have a whole different read on why the Oz books are here. I totally forgot they were connected to the federal questions of the Federal Reserve, the gold standard, um, the price of silver, and so on. And uh, that's going to be fun in our discussion episode when we get there. But we should probably close out here. So that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And while you are on the internet looking us up, please check us out on Patreon as well at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. If you join us now, you will be just in time to get our bonus episode there on a walking tour of the shambles, this really fun pamphlet that Gene Wolfe co-wrote with Neil Gaiman, and then the rest of our series on Chicago in speculative fiction. Next time here, we will be back with part two of our recap, covering up to page 299. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>